Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask various people to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they love and one they loathe and would like to be rid of. My guest in this episode is the American comedian Rita Rudner, who started her career as a dancer on Broadway in such shows as Follies and Mac and Mabel, until she noticed the lack of female stand-up comedians in New York she decided to fill the void, which she has done for three decades, touring the world, appearing regularly on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and her own comedy showcases on HBO, and becoming the longest-running solo comedy show in Las Vegas, selling over two million tickets in the process. She wrote and starred in the film Peter's Friends, alongside Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson and Stephen Fry. She's even performed for President Barack Obama. <laughs> What a great president. Anyway, I spoke to Rita in her home in Los Angeles. Sadly, I didn't get to fly out there. We just linked up on Zoom. And despite Marconi's efforts all those years ago, transatlantic communications are still not perfect. In fact, they're crap. Most of the time, you'll hear my voice through my microphone, but every now and then, Zoom lets us down, I'm afraid, so you'll hear my voice coming out of Rita's computer. It's all a bit technical. I mean, just send me a stamped address envelope and I'll, I'll send you a diagram. Still, at least I found out the five things Rita wants to put in a time capsule. And now you can. I hope you like it. Oh. 
Oh, this is a little bit scary because I've listened to a lot of the people that you've had on and they're all very smart. <laughs> so I'll try to be smart. I'm not sure I can do it, but I'm going to try. Well, the problem is that I only sound smart when they're smart. So we're in big trouble. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not going to help you. Um, I can't be smart. <laughs> anyway, we'll try. I'll try. Oh, well, that's good enough for me. All right. You look very well. I put makeup on for you today because we've been in the house for, what, two and a half months now. So I, yes. I've, uh, I, have, uh, I, ha- I save a lot of makeup also because I only have to make up this part of my face if I go to the grocery store because I have the whole mask on. <laughs> Should I be interesting yet? Have we started? No, not really, no. Tell me when to be interesting. We might as well do it. I think that's the important thing. Let's, let's just do it. I'll try to be entertaining. <laughs> I have no fear. All right, Rita Rudner. All the way from the U.S. of A. And there you are. From California. And the sun is shining. And I'm going to do a little swimming. I'm so lucky I have something I can do and exercise here. Because otherwise, I don't know why I'm I'm bothering. Because I don't know when I'm ever going to work again. I've got all these (laughs) dresses and shoes. And I remember when I used to go out and work, that pushed all of my jobs into next year. Yeah, sadly, yes, that's true. But anyway, I figure I'll stay in shape just in case I ever tell jokes again to the public. Well, maybe this is the answer. We, you could just do it online. Well, this is the problem with comedy. With songs, you can hear them over and over and over again, mm-hmm, and they're yeah. comforting. With jokes, if you hear them over and over and over again, they're boring. And songs, you know, they depend on amusing your ears and, and your brain, and jokes depend on a like that. And once this is gone, people don't want to know anymore. So, and I don't write that fast. I'm not like a prolific person. So I gotta, I gotta save all of my thoughts and push them into next year. And also that reaction of an audience as you're talking to them is, is vital, isn't it, in comedy? Oh gosh, I know. We've been having some, um, specials where people are trying to tell jokes from home and there's no audience and do the show from it just isn't the same and uh, I was doing a play as a matter of fact right when this COVID thing started and uh, I was doing Barefoot in the Park in our local little theater here and it was really fun and it was going well and then of course this happened and then they had to start sitting people um, apart, like four seats apart, yeah. and then one here, and then one in Canada, you know, <laughs> and it just doesn't, it doesn't work unless people are just bunched together in an audience. Absolutely. Can you imagine a rave with people like six feet apart? So we just have to be patient and wait, and I'll just exercise so I can still fit into something. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get through it somehow. In the meantime, we're going to talk about five things that you'd like to put into a time capsule. So uh, what's your first item, Rita? Well, the first thing I was deciding to do, because what I think is really important in in life is a direction. And mm. so the first thing I would put into my time capsule is toe shoes. Toe shoes. <laughs> Any particular reason? My mother want, you know, took me to the ballet when I was a little kid. Like I tried it and it was excruciating and um, painfully difficult and it took forever to master. But that's what life is. You know, you just <laughs> see something, you want to do it. And then you get into it and then you find out how hard it is and then you're too far into it and you have to keep going. And then if you like it, you're lucky. So I was so lucky that I had a direction in life because don't you think that if you have a direction in life, it takes care of like half your life because you you know where you're going. The other half is very difficult too. We have to find a partner. You have to stay alive. You have to make somebody else into a person. And that's not easy. (laughs) (laughs) But when you have something that you like to do, I think that's kind of what saves you from an alternative universe where you can go. 
And for you, that was dance, was it? Always dance? Oh, all I thought about was dance. And I was uh, I was lucky enough to be really, really limber. My mom wanted, I think my mom, my mom got very sick when I was young and, and died oh, when dear. I was 13. Yeah, it was bad. But she wanted to be a dancer, evidently. And they, I found pictures of her doing backbends and, you know, like athletic things. So she was kind of athletic. And I think that's why she started me in dancing. And I was four or five, somewhere around there. Yeah. And from there, that's all I ever wanted to do. In fact, I have a vaccination on my leg because, you know, when I'm so old, when I was vaccinated, they were still like, I, I don't using big, you know, needles that were this big and they weren't <laughs> sure it was going to take. So, I mean, they just punched something into me and it didn't take. And then I didn't take and then it got it. And then so I have a scar on my leg. Um, from where I was vaccinated a hundred times because they didn't know how to do it yet because it was, I think it was the early 1800s. <laughs> I remember I was a little kid. I remember saying to my mother, I'm going to be a dancer and I've got this on my leg. <laughs> I was just a little kid. So yeah. just because I had that direction, I think it, it kept me from being on the streets because I was the recipe for somebody who was going to go wayward. Yes, I can imagine. And it, it just said, I want to be able to do this, this, this. I want I want to get into it. First, I tried to get into uh, ballet companies, which I did. And then I found out very, very, I was very upset for a long time because my feet weren't good enough to be a ballerina. Because to be a ballerina, you have to have a certain physique. I didn't have it. You have, I said, I always you said, you have to have long legs and a small head. And, um, I had regular legs and a big head uh-huh. and, you know, all, I wasn't flat chested. And how's that going to work, you know, with a, a ballerina? Have you ever seen a bosomy ballerina? I don't think so. No, sadly not. <laughs> no. So then my feet didn't go over. You got, they have to, they have to arch and my feet go like this. They're not terrible feet, but you, I stand on my toes. Oh, and also your toes have to be the same and they have to be kind of even. A sort of level. Yeah, because you have to have more support while you're standing on your toes. And my toes go, I was a disaster. Anyway, so <laughs> I said, I've got to figure out something else because I love to dance. But I'm just, the, the toe shoe thing isn't working out for me. And then you have to learn how to pivot and say, I'm going to stay in dancing. And then I said, start to take tap and jazz and acrobat and all the other stuff. And um, that got me to Broadway which was my favorite thing that I ever did. When was this? In the 1970s? Yes, I guess it was. So you were basically a schoolgirl. I was uh, almost 16. Right. So, so why did you leave home so early? Because I hated school. Because my mother had died and my father married somebody who didn't like me. And she wanted me out of the house. And I just, oh, it was, it was just a mess. So I just moved to, to New York by myself and got into a show when I was 16, and that, that traveled around the country. And what, what would I have done if I didn't have dancing? Yeah. And also, what I, what a good thing about dancing is it makes you exhausted. Uh, at that point, I didn't want to do anything where I would think too much about what had gone on with my mom and everything. So I kept uh, making myself exhausted. And as I was getting t- more tired, I was getting better at dancing. <laughs> <laughs> So it was a, it was an escape then. You just concentrated on dance and, and did it all the time. Uh, that's all I that's all I did. I would just look for uh, different dance classes. Yeah, I was staying like in a little room where the bathroom was down the hall. And at night, I remember being so exhausted, I had to wait for my turn in the bathtub. And when the bathtub was empty, 
<laughs> going to the bathtub and, and set my muscles. But it was such a relief to be able to think of something that I wanted to do that I think as long as you're pushing yourself forward, you're doing something. And I suppose also always thinking, this is what my mother wanted to do, and I'm doing it. Yeah, it kind of, well, I, I thought of that later. I didn't want to think of my mother much for another, let's see, that I was 16, 26, 36, 40, 56, 76, 80. Oh, no, no, I went too far. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, let's see. Um, we, about 10 years later, tw- 10 to 12 years later, I started to be able to process it. But it took that long. Most people have a very, very good screen put up about when they can deal with things and when they can't. I couldn't deal with it until then. And then that's when I started to wonder, oh, well, maybe I maybe I should start to think about what happened there so I can go forward. Whenever stops you from going forward, I think you try to get out of I always try to get out of that roadblock. It's often the case, I think, with teenagers particularly they're very good at just going okay this isn't happening yeah and my father was good at it too because he just married somebody else very quickly I was in New York with my friend and we were taking dancing lessons when I was 14 and um, I got a note from my uh, telegram because in those days I had telegrams and I'm with my friend and um, and my friend Charlene came and said this is a telegram and I said oh well and I was des- I thought, oh my God, my father's dead too, you know, because that's what you think when you get a telegram. Yeah. And my, the telegram said, just got married. <laughs> and you say you didn't invite me. No, I said, what? I just got married. Just want to tell you. I said, oh, that's nice. <laughs> and when I came home from New York after studying dance, it was a strange woman in my house. But anyway, that's why I put the toe shoes in because I think having a direction in your life is something that, you you just you can't realize how valuable it is until later on yeah yeah having somewhere to go something to do every day did you have a passion when i was young yes i did have a passion and actually it was um i did like to sing you're so good and you were so good in that little show we did it was really good you can do any accent (laughs) we said do this accent you're perfect i can't do any accent ask me to do an accent do an accent. I can't do an accent. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that so that's what I I'm I hope for my daughter, and hopefully you know just something that that gets you through whatever because you're always going to have hard times. Yeah. Now I look back because you know when I go back to New York, well, and we went back last year, and um, we, you go to a Broadway show and you go, how do these people do this? These dancers and they're jumping and they're and I it's like a different life. But another thing that um, I was, I kind of wish I'd put in a time capsule mm-hmm. when I got into Follies on Broadway. And um, was that the original production of Follies? Uh huh. Wow. I was 18, you know, when I, I did that show. And I was just thrilled to be in it and that I could, you know, do what I was doing. But I didn't think to save anything from any of the shows I was in, ever. I have nothing. Once in a while, Martin finds a picture online and goes, were you in this show? Oh, yeah, I was in that. I didn't do anything. <clears throat> but I'm so glad that I had enough discipline in my life to, to do that when I did it. Scott, go on, tell me some of the shows. So you did Follies, the original production of Follies. Yes, on Broadway. Yeah. I did the original production of Mac and Mabel on Broadway. Wow, with um, Robert... Robert Preston. Robert, oh my word. Yeah, but my first Broadway show was Promises, Promises. And then after that, I did The Magic Show, 
And then I did a real big bomb called So Long 174th Street. And my last show on Broadway was Annie, where I played Lily St. Regis um, on, in Annie in 1980. That was my last Broadway show. And that's when I started to, to go into comedy. But when I did, you know, I did the Broadway shows and I got to work with all those people. Mm. When I say these names now, nobody knows. I was doing um, Barefoot in the Park. And one of the lines, because it was written by Neil Simon a while ago, was um, Daryl Zanuck is coming over tonight. And one of the, the woman who was playing my daughter said, who is Daryl Zanuck? <laughs> one, and once I was in, a, in a, my dressing room in Las Vegas and um, there was a picture of me and Bob Hope on the wall. And the, the guy who uh, was coming in to take something out of my dressing room looked and said, um, who's that? I said, Bob Hope. And he said, who's that? <laughs> so it's oh, hard no. when I say any of these names. I don't know if people yeah, know. But the I the did, nature of fame. I did get to work with Gower Champion and David Merrick and Michael Bennett and Hal Prince and, you know, all those people that, that were exceptional. So I feel very Easy. fortunate. Yes. Fantastic. Oh, wow. Well, then we will put those shoes in there and, and all that hard work and dedication. It was a, an interesting an interesting memory. And one of my favorite jokes was Henny Youngman. And he used to say, I went to the ballet and uh, all the girls were dancing on their toes. Why don't they just get taller girls? <laughs> yeah, very good. Isn't that a good joke? Yeah, I you, like Henny Youngman. Your jokes are like that. Mine are basically just puns. That's the best I can do. It's a very English thing, I think. Yes. Well, that one, um, my sec- should I do my second thing in my time capsule? Yes, please. What is your second thing? Catch a Rising Star. What, the comedy club? That was the best little Petri dish of comedy. It was just such a special place. Because after Annie, that's what I started to do. The um, I started to get this thing where maybe I should do comedy because there weren't too mm. many comedians, female comedians. I said, well, there aren't too many of them. Maybe I should try that. There won't be, there won't be as much competition. <laughs> yeah, very wise. I'd go to these Broadway auditions and I would hear these singers and I can sing, but I'm not a singer. And they were fantastic. And then I was already around 27, you know, or 28, when mm. you don't get to be a better dancer. And all the young people were coming up, and they were. Ter- and then I couldn't be an actress because I didn't want to take off my clothes. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't want to cry in public, and I don't want to pretend I'm someone else. So that pretty much eliminates acting. Yeah, pretty much. It wasn't for me. And um, so I said, well, the only thing left is uh, comedy. So let's try that. And then first I started to hang around the improv because um, it was on the West Side and I was in, in the Alvin Theater in Annie. So uh, after I would, I would go to uh, the improv and, and sit there and say, why, what's, why is this funny? Why isn't it funny? What's going on? And then I said, I asked somebody in, in the bar area, I said, how much would it be for someone to write your material? And they said, oh, about $3,000, and we can't guarantee it will work because you have no persona. And I said, well, let's see, $3,000, and uh, it's not going to work. Let's not do that. Always thinking, always very bright. Oh, you're bright. Always putting two and two together. So I said, (laughs) okay, so I'm going to have to learn how to write jokes then, I guess. And um, sitting in those comedy clubs, it was just amazing to see how – comedians developed and the comedians that were in the 80s uh, that was what my first book was about it was called tickle pink it was about a girl who you know was a comedian who <laughs> left home at 16 his mother died oh, how could i think of those how did you come up with that it's amazing 
you got to start with what you know. In fact, that's one of the first rules of comedy. Mel Brooks said, start with the truth. At least you got a place to start. It's true with fiction. You know, it's true with nonfiction. You've still only fiction. You keep going with what's true and nonfiction. You start and then you make it up, you know. Yeah. So did you study it then? You actually went and deliberately studied comedy? Thinking. Every day, like I studied ballet and dance and things. I went and I said, every day I'm going to, I made, I did a little, a little comedy college. It's good when you don't have an education like me, <laughs> that you just do it, your, do it yourself. <laughs> I said, well, how can I learn how to do this? Because no one can really teach you. So what, the first thing I did was um, hang around the clubs. And it was, it's fascinating to see one night something's funny and one night something isn't. Why is somebody laughing? I, I just found it really mm. interesting. Yeah, the same jokes. Uh, one night they go a storm and... One um, night they wouldn't work. Yeah. I'd watch amateurs get up because I used to go on amateur night to try to get up on and see what I could do. Mm. Then I started um, going to research comedy about what came before because I always think the history of what you want to do is, is um, beneficial. And mm. at that point, there was a teeny, teeny little uh, office called the TV Museum of Comedy. And now it's huge. It's on in Beverly Hills and it's a big schmigilly. And then it was, and I used to, um, used to take out little videos and watch them. And I would watch uh, Jack Benny because that was my mother's favorite comedian. And yeah. she really liked Jack Benny. And I would watch how he didn't really look funny, but he was funny because of the character that he was portraying was so serious. So I said, well, that's something. And then I started listening to Woody Allen albums when he was first starting, because he had such, such a good writer. Yeah. And I was lucky living in New York. I got to, they had film festivals then. And they, I discovered, um, you know, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and Jacques Tati. And um, there was uh, oh, one I can't think of that I'm going to think of after the interview's over. <laughs> All these, um, these different, you know, geniuses that, that came before and figuring out what, so I would do something like that every day and then write a joke every day and then try to get on stage every night. And that was just kind of little by little by little by little. I mean, it was teeny, 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 teeny little steps, but yeah. cable television was just starting then and they had no money. So they couldn't do big productions. Now they can do huge miniseries and movies and everything. And they're, you know, they're very sophisticated. But then they said, what can we do that's really cheap? I know we'll get a young person who is starting comedy. We'll stand them in front of a brick wall with a microphone. And that's the cheapest form of entertainment anyone could possibly have. And that's when it started to explode. Mm. Cable TV was coming into its own when stand-up comedy was just like, the, it kind of meshed into like one big balloon of entertainment. So how long would you say it took you then to, to really, well, not to perfect it? You never perfect anything. Um, but to work up a routine that you were happy with? I think two years to get five minutes of material that was really, really solid. About two years. And um, that's when I got on the David Letterman show for the first time. And I did the five minutes and it really, really worked. And then I came back and my friend said, it was really funny. What are you going to do for your next five minutes? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I have nothing else. I got nothing. It took me two years to get that much together. 
So I had that night, I was right back, right back at the clubs. Yeah. They call it with TV feeding the monster because once it's on TV, you, you, you've done it and you've got to do something else over again. With vaudeville, mm. they could do the same routine for their whole lives. I remember many times uh, as a young man seeing people try out in clubs and uh, perform and people who are now uh, extremely successful. Eddie Izzard, I remember, had a club in Soho where he would stand up and do routines and you'd have to go through 10 or 15 minutes of just completely unfunny rambling, really. Every now and again, he would just soar and then he'd fall again. But he, So he's perfected his art and what now looks extremely easy to him is something that he's worked on for many years and I think that must be true of all stand-up comedians. It's true of toe shoes. It's the same thing. <laughs> Yep. It looks easy. If it looks easy, you're doing it right. And, you know, a lot of people came up to me and said, um, you know, I could be funny if somebody would write me jokes too. And I said, but that doesn't work like that. It's a never-ending process. I mean, I'm still, you know, figuring out what I can do better and why I... Because I, I was so... Um, I'm a very kind of an introverted person. I'm not, I can't, as I said, I can't do accents. I don't want to be an actress. I don't, you know, I'm not somebody who demonstrates a lot of emotion on stage. And I got a, a, a lot of criticism about that because, you know, they, I don't let people in. I, you know, I'm just, I'm all surface. I'm all, and I really, really try to, to do something that, where I can act it out more. I'm always trying to figure out how to display more emotion and, you know, I did this thing and I did a whole story on stage, which is hard for me to do because I like to rely on punchlines and it's, I'm trying not to. And, and somebody came up to me after the show and said, you're really subtle. Like, I'm trying not to be subtle. I don't want to be subtle. I want to be funny. Even when I'm trying not to be subtle, I'm still subtle. But, you know, I think artistry is a, um, it's a never-ending process. So once you think, well, there, that's done. It's not done. It's never done. I lo- and I still love comedy. I love doing yeah. it. I love figuring it out. I love when I think of a new joke and I want to be able to do it again, but we'll have to wait and see. But that's clear, isn't it? If you went back and looked at those people and looked at many people that somebody around that time would have ignored. So you're looking at Jack Benny. Now, many people would have thought then, well, that's old fashioned. Or Bob Hope, you know, it's old fashioned. It won't work anymore. But actually their skill at telling a joke, Jack Benny's timing. He was the best. And Woody Allen's writing was just yeah. the best. I mean, I just, I remember I used to sit there with a notebook and diagram when the laugh was and why it came when I would yeah. listen to those Woody Allen albums and uh, mm. where does the joke hit? And that's why I'm, I'm going to talk for a minute about puns. Are you ready? Okay, I'm happy to hear that, yeah. To me, a pun induces a hmm instead of a hop because when a pun, a pun is two thoughts coming together in a straight line and they meet each other. And if they meet each other, it's not quite a surprise. It's a recognition. But when a thought comes that is unexpected, it's a peak. Yeah. A peak will produce a laugh when a straight line will not. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know that from personal experience, Ruti. Yeah, I've often delivered my puns and people have said, yep, I see what you've done there. And it's fine, but that's why you can't use it in an act. No. A conversation, yes. But, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I'm going to write you an act and they, can I write, do you accept jokes? And, you know, I always nicely say, you know, thank you for thinking of me. But if I don't think of it, I, um, it doesn't work with me. I always think when I watch you work, the bravest thing you do is to 
hold a pause is to leave silence as it were to give time between laughs for people to in a way come back down again before you take them up again so that in a way is a sort of a jack benny trait isn't it yeah well i learned that from from watching him but also an audience to me is like a dancing partner and all dancing partners are different and all audiences are different So with some audiences, you can leave a really long pause and it gets funnier. And with some audience, audiences, if you leave a long pause, it falls flat. You know, you really have to figure out the rhythm of the audience you're speaking with. And there's no, you can't, and people go, well, have you rehearsed what you're going to do? I said, yes, I have, but I have to, you know, I always go look at the room. Like when I, and the hardest are private gigs. When you have to do private gigs and they're, they're in round tables and, you know, half of them are facing the wrong way and they've had too much to drink and they're very, very difficult. But then I learned um, from watching the, those people at the improv all those years that if you get in on the right level, it's going to soar. If you get in on a level where they can't relate, you're going to have to work forever to get them back. You know, they're just, every audience is different. Mm, every audience is yeah. a new person I have to entertain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word, your life is tough. <laughs> but I really like it. It's, it's fun to do and everybody's happy. There's an old English actor over here, a man called Donald Sindon. He's a big old Shakespearean actor and done all sorts of things. And I saw him a long, long time ago play Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing. Uh, he did a speech in it where he was talking about women and he basically had a guitar in his hand as if he was about to play it or a lute as if he was about to play it but he never played it so he would do a bit of the speech and then go to the lute as if he were going to play it and then deliver the next line and every time he did it got an enormous laugh that's jack benny a little bit that's exactly what i said to him was that jack benny and he went yes absolutely but a lute is a very funny name for a musical instrument and that might end up in one of my acts <laughs> what do you play? The lute. I just love that. Okay, lute. I play the lute. I did study all this in comedy, and it's really fun, and I haven't written anything down. You should do. You really should do, because all that, that thing of knowing that a certain name is funny or knowing that, that a, a place name is funny, that town is funny. Schenectady is funny. Mm, <laughs> I don't know why. It is funny. <laughs> Chicago, no. <laughs> Schenectady, yes. <laughs> it's a really good little, little uh, mental exercise. What cities are funny? I have had discussions about what's a funny number. Mm -hmm, seven. Seven. There you are. It is the funny number. Seven is the funniest number. I don't know why eight is not funny. Seven. <laughs> seven. Uh, seven. It's good. Yeah. Well, well, I must go and see Seven Brides for Seven Brothers again and have a good laugh. <laughs> it's an excellently funny number. <laughs> Okay, well, we're going to put that into the time capsule then, Rita. And you can go there anytime you like and uh, and stand in front of a brick wall. Oh, I love Catch a Rising Star. It was nothing better than that soggy, messy, moldy universe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's Martin. Hi, sweetie, we're talking. How are you? I'm on my third time capsule, thanks. Oh, okay. <laughs> Mr. Patient, hurry up. I get to talk to Mike now. Leave me alone. <laughs> okay. We'll put Catch a Rising Star into the time capsule for you, Rita. So, um, so what's number three? We're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back with Rita and possibly Martin very shortly. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what the next thing is that Rita Rutner would like to put in her time capsule. My dog, I mean, you have to have air, air holes. Yes, of course. I love my dog Twinkle now, but Bonkers was my very, very special. I always had dogs. I had Tiny Agatha, Bonkers and Twinkle, and I love them all. And I love them all equally, I have to say. But Bonkers was a very, very special dog because he was from a show in Vegas and he ended up in my act in Vegas, and he played almost every casino. He played about, I'd say, eight casinos on the Strip, because I, I did Vegas quite a bit. And Martin and I don't gamble, and I didn't work at night, so we used to try to find things during the day to do. And we went over, there was this uh, show called Stacy's Mess of Mutts, and mm-hmm. it was an afternoon show, and they had a big arena. Oh, wait, my dog wants to come in. Uh, twinkle. Hang on, she's scratching the door. Can I go get her? Yes, of course you can. Just sing a little, because you can sing really well. Okay, okay. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Good girl. <laughs> there she is, my little twinkle girl. There <laughs> yes, she is. I've just proven I don't sing very well, but uh, <laughs> he does twinkle as well. Look, there's a dog who does not want to be away from you. No, she's my baby. So what breed was bonkers? Bonkers was a mutt, and Stacy Moore got these, uh, all these mutt, uh, I don't like to call them mutts, they're fantastic animals. They were mixed breeds from the shelters, and he would uh, put them in his act. And Bonkers was just a big, hairy, lovely dog, and somehow he had very springy legs, and he did the high jump in the end, and then he balanced on a tightrope. Well, I've always loved hairy dogs, as you can see with Twinkle. And my dog, Agatha, was uh, a mixed dog. And Bonkers came and I said to Martin, that looks like Agatha. That Bonkers dog looks just like Agatha because he was just big and hairy. And then about, you know, three or four months later, we went back because I got another job in Vegas. And we went back to see the show again. And Bonkers wasn't in the show anymore. And of course, Martin goes, go backstage See what happened to Bonkers. Where's Bonkers? We came to see Bonkers. <laughs> so I went backstage afterwards and I said, you know, I'm Rita Rudner. I'm in the MGM across the street. And Martin and I are big fans of Bonkers. <laughs> and we would like to know 
what happened to Bonkers? And he said Bonkers was hit by a car and Bonkers had a, a fractured back leg. Oh, no. And Bonkers could no longer be in the show. And um, he was going to put Bonkers back in the pack. Excuse me, I can't say it, the pound. I said, just, I just said right there, we'll take Bonkers. <laughs> we'll, we'll, just, we'll just take him. And Bonkers had like a big scar down his leg and was all matted and, oh, he was just in terrible shape. He had some of his teeth knocked out and um, he was just, he got in the car and he had like a little a rope around his neck and he had, he didn't have any toys, he had a tin bowl. You know, he was just like a little Oliver. So <laughs> we took him back to Los Angeles and he became just a fantastic dog. And then he got to a place where I had a hula hoop because that's one, a really good exercise. And I said, I wonder if he still remembers. And I took the hula hoop and I just put it down like near the ground so he wouldn't have to jump, even though it was fine. And he just went right through the hoop. And then <clears> we discovered that when you needed him in a room, you wouldn't say, come here, bonkers, like come here, twinkle. You just clap. And he would recognize the applause and run into the room like, am I on? You know? <laughs> and they used to sing happy birthday to kids in the audience and if you'd sing happy birthday, he would sing along with you with happy birthday. He was just like a, a the best. He was a showbiz dog. He was just <laughs> yeah. born into show business until he had this horrible accident. And I had a, started having real long gigs in Vegas because I was doing very, very well in, in Las Vegas. And Martin and I always had fun there. And, you know, if you have fun in show business, you got to keep doing it. There's another saying that um, was in a book that I read about show business, ride the horse in the direction it's going. And our horse kept going to Las Vegas. Yeah. And we got to the MGM where I had always performed. And on my way, I called the entertainment director and I said, we have a dog now. And he said, well, we don't allow dogs in the hotel. We only have animals in the hotel if they're in the show. So I <laughs> said, well, as a matter of fact... <laughs> bonkers is in my show <laughs> he said well if the dog's in the show then maybe he so from then on I put bonkers in the show and I didn't really want to make him do anything because I first of all I didn't have the time he was in the show that night right. so at the end of the show would you like to see my dog and the audience goes yeah 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 yeah." and bonkers came on and whatever he was already doing I told him to do like the split second he was doing it bonkers became a sensation and to this day I have people asking me, what happened to Bonkers? Is Bonkers still in your act? And Bonkers played every casino on the strip. On my nights off, he knew he, that at a certain time, because dogs can tell the time, that it was his time to go. And he would uh, wait at the door. And I'd say, Bonkers, um, I have a night off. And, you know, it was hard to explain to him. Did he used to check the crowd, see if Sinatra was in? And mm -hmm. Mm, yeah, I know they thought, yeah. He's <laughs> a good dog. He always had that ace up his sleeve, didn't he? Which is, the, you know, look, if they said, you're not really in this act, you're cheating, he could tightrope walk. He, well, I didn't because his legs weren't, his back legs weren't as strong, but I did have pictures. He was on, he also, at this point, he became famous in Vegas. He was on the cover of Dog Weekly. He was everywhere. So it just became just a fact that Bonkers was in my act. And he was really a good boy. Oh, lovely. Well, dear Bonkers, he's going to go in there for, for all time. I'm going to put a high wire in there. Well, you know, maybe a washing line or something. He can practice on it. 
<laughs> right, so we've got two more. We've got one that you cherish or love, and we've got one that you'd like to bury in the ground. Oh, I forgot to mention my... Ma- uh, Martin's going to kill me. Um, well, I'm going to go back into my time capsule where I met Martin because he saw me perform at Catch a Rising Star. And before that, I had really all bad boyfriends. And then all of a sudden, I had a good boyfriend. <laughs> and yeah. then we got married. And then we've worked together ever since. And we've been married for almost 32 years. Can you believe that? No, I can't. So, again, when I said, like, the puzzle, that you put together the pieces, the puzzle pieces of your life, comedy put together the romantic bit of my life where I actually had a partner that I could do things with and, you know, share my life with. So when Martin saw you in Catch a Rising Star, that was in New York, wasn't it? So did he then take you to Australia or to the Edinburgh Festival? The Edinburgh Festival. Ah. He was producing shows for the Edinburgh Festival. We did this little show called New York Stand-Up Comedy in uh, the Edinburgh Festival at the Assembly Rooms. Ah, yeah, I know it well. And then um, when he moved to Australia, he kept asking me to go to Australia. And I kept saying, oh, Australia's so far, and I've got a boyfriend, I've got I'm working. And, I'm, and then one day he said, come to Australia. And um, I, I had, had a big fight with my boyfriend, and I said, oh, I'm just going to go to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to Australia. And uh, he had had a, uh, his girlfriend had uh, not moved to Australia with him. And we'd known each other for years by then. And I just moved in. And that was that. Great. I just think that once you find something you like to do, the rest of your life kind of falls into place. But anyway, so that was another good thing about comedy. And um, then, so the last thing was that my daughter has to go in the time capsule. Because I really like that she's home. My favorite thing is when she's in her room. Mm. Nothing bad can happen to her in her room. You go out there and it's a very dangerous universe, but nothing <laughs> bad can. And you know, you know, you just, yeah. you have kids and they go, and she's still here and I just want her to stay here. Because that was one of the greatest things that we ever did. Because Martin and I, um, I got married very late. I didn't get married till I was 35. How old? Be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Be quiet, Martin. I used to say my husband's two years younger than he thinks I am. But anyway, (laughs) so we were married for a couple years, and I was maybe 39, 40, because we were so busy, and I was traveling around the world, and Martin was producing shows in Australia and in England, and we had this and that, and we were meeting, and it was, you know, we were... And I never thought about having children. And um, Martin said, well, well, you know, I don't want to have children either. And we were fine. And then, you know, we adopted Bonkers. And Bonkers was our baby, a big hairy baby that we loved. (laughs) Then when I was like around 42, Martin said, well, why don't we try to have a family? And I said, well, you know, you should have mentioned it before this because I'm 42. (laughs) (laughs) So then I went to have these tests, you know, about, you know, what your chances are getting pregnant. I had some blood tests. And then um, the, this test came back and said, I had a 1%, a 1% chance. Oh, no. <laughs> and I said, Martin, I have a 1% chance. So uh, it's not going to happen. And I didn't want to do the in vitro because the hormone shots, everything, because of my mother's history. And I, I don't think Martin would be physically able to give me a shot, you know. And he sees a spider <laughs> and he calls me in the room. So I, I don't think that's going to happen. So then he said, why don't we adopt? Uh, let's adopt. And I said, well, 
how do you how do you adopt? I don't know how you adopt. And so he said, well, get it together. So, <laughs> Always the gentleman. Well, I kept asking people. So one day I'm on a plane and the guy next to me is a performer who I knew. And he, he starts talking and he said, um, I can't wait to get home because we've adopted this baby. And this is the most fantastic child. And I said, oh, how'd you do it? And he told me how, to do, how he did it. And uh, it took about nine months, which is, I think, logical, a hmm. logical amount of time for a baby to take. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we just said, whoever comes is fine. Let's just figure it out. And uh, we, we adopted the most fantastic child in the world. And it's just, uh, I never, ever thought of myself as ever having children, ever. I think another reason was because um, my childhood was very traumatic. And I didn't really think that that was a thing that I wanted to to experience again with a, a child. I just didn't want to. No. I didn't think I would be a very good mother. You know, you have get all these things. And and all of a sudden, um, our life had changed because we had, somebody had offered to build me my own theater in Vegas. And I didn't have to travel anymore. It was kind of vaudeville in reverse. Instead of you traveling to different places, I stay in one place and the audience gets on a plane and then a new audience comes, and then a new audience comes, and then a new audience comes. And it was an ideal situation for raising a child. Suddenly a stable family life. A stable family life in Las Vegas. Who would have thought it? <laughs> Who would have thought it? People kind of said, why did you move to Las Vegas? Why did you... Nah, nah, nah. Raising... It was the greatest thing in the world where I could actually have a career. Martin and I did loads of projects when we were there. We did... Um, we had a syndicated show called Ask Rita. It was an improvised, that show. No, it was. It was a really fun show where people would write in letters about problems that they mm. had in their lives, and comedians would uh, make fun of them, <laughs> <laughs> make their problems worse and not take them seriously. Yeah, it sounds like going to my doctor. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my psychiatrist. So um, we did that. We did all these projects. I was able to work, and we were able to raise a child. And the thing that a child brings out in you is is so special because I don't think there's a way that you can actually care for somebody else more than you care for yourself unless you have a child. I mean, even when you have a partner, you kind of have a little, what's in it for me? <laughs> <laughs> I want to be with this person and I love him very much, but it also is a good situation for who I am. With a child, you're just theirs. Whoever they are, you're there for them. And they're more important than what you're going through. And that's how Martin and I kind of changed our lives. And I don't know if we became better people. I hope we did. But it is a, a new dimension of, of love that you experience mm. when we were lucky enough to have our child, Molly. <laughs> that's wonderful. Okay, we'll put your darling daughter, Molly, into the time capsule. Uh, and I know she's she's very musical, isn't she? So, uh, so she doesn't get bored. Let's put some... Uh, well, let's, let's put in a guitar. Piano, drums, anything she wants. Anything she wants. And she plays ukulele and dulcimer. Does she play the lute? I love the lute. You said it again, lute. Yes, it's a good word, lute. <laughs> I'll send you a lute. Okay, we've got one more item, Rita, which is the, uh, the bad thing that you would like to lock away. The Northridge earthquake. Oh. Oh, my God, that was terrible. Were you there? Oh, yeah. Martin and I, um, we had just bought our first nice house. We just finished doing Peter's Friends. And when we came back, 
we were moving into the house and we we got an enormous mortgage and I used to have sleepless nights singing, we'll never pay this back. We were asleep one night, it was in 1994, the house just started to rumble like you, I just didn't know what was happening. And I always wanted a ceiling with beams on it. The earthquake started and I just remember looking up at the beams thinking these beams are going to kill me. And I'm... <laughs> I'm a person who doesn't wake up quickly and I was very disoriented and the whole house was moving so dramatically that I just didn't know where I was. And Martin immediately, he snaps into action. That's not a phrase I normally would associate with Martin. Oh, he does. When there's a crisis, he snaps into action. If something goes wrong, like, um, you know, a bird disgraces herself on a window, that's a disaster. But if there's a real disaster... He's very, very in charge and overly competent. And he said, put your shoes on. There's an earthquake. We're going to go outside right now. And um, we made our way outside, which was hard because some of the doors had fallen off our house. And, you know, all the uh, drawers had, were, were on the floor and the clothes were, were... And it was even more of a mess than usual. And um, <laughs> we made our way outside and people just started to come outside on our little street and we were just standing, all standing there in shock that we couldn't believe it. And, and I just, and Martin looked at the house and said, we bought a new house. And now we have, a, two weeks later, we have a fixer upper. And we were lucky that our house was, you know, at least still standing. Mm. But all the, none, none of the doors would close because all the windows had shifted and it was just a mess. And um, we, our neighbors had wine cellars and the smell of booze like wafting through the air. All the bottles were broken everywhere. And we're standing out there in our robes and our neighbors, who we, we've never talked to before because no one talks to each other in California. And um, <laughs> they tiptoed up to us and lady looked at me and I thought she was going to say, are you all right? And she said, I just want to say I love Peter's friends. <laughs> <laughs> so Martin somehow managed we got the garage door open and we drove to a hotel, the Beverly Wilshire. And um, we got one of the last rooms that we, we checked in so we could stay there until we could figure out what to do. Because he had figured out that was the, one of the only hotels. It's built on rollers and it rolled around so it didn't have damage to it. Right. And a lot of people in the area had figured out that that was the place to go. But, oh, I forgot. So while we were standing on the street, we had a neighbor that wasn't quite on the street, but his gates were on the street. And he went out and he owned, he was Kirk Kokorian, who was the owner of the MGM and airlines, and he was this billionaire. But he had a generator and he had the only electricity on the block. And a few of the neighbors, we got together and we said, maybe he'll let us go make a phone call in his house or something because he seems to have the generator. And um, I pressed the little intercom button and a voice came on and I said, you know, this is your neighbor and we're wondering if a few of us could just come by because it's been the terrible earthquake and you seem to have a generator and you have electricity. Maybe we can, you know, make a phone call or I don't know, sit the, you know, until the, it gets light. And they said, no. 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 <laughs> oh, no. It's astonishing, isn't it? No, you can't come in. We spent the next um, year or two trying to fix up that house. We finally did. There were still things that would never be the same, but we just kind of looked at it as character. 
Do you have insurance for things like that? We had insurance and they paid us $200 for the contents of our refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) That was what we got because, oh, it was such a bad earthquake. The refrigerator doors flew off of the refrigerator and were on the other side of the room. It's absolutely terrifying. I remember as a boy seeing the film Earthquake and not oh. quite not quite believing it, you know, because in this country we get a slightly windy day and everybody thinks it's a disaster. Whenever I hear that these people come on with earthquake forecasts, it still gives me the shivers because it was just such a horrendous experience. Yeah. So can you please put that in the time capsule? Oh, I'll definitely do that for you. Okay. I tell you, that time capsule is very strong. It's not going to shake. It's not going to shudder. That thing is contained. You're safe with me. Although you really hope that actually one day the man in the large 20-acre estate is going to knock on someone's door and say, I I wonder if I could just borrow a cup of sugar or... Yeah. Because everybody knows what we're going to say to him. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, there we are, Rita. That's it. It's been such a joy. Thank you so much for taking part in my time capsule. Let's see each other in the not-too-distant future. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Rita Rudner and Martin Bergman. And, of course, Twinkle. If you enjoyed it half as much as I did, you can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have the time, please do rate us and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at MyTCPod, or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens, which is sort of nepotism in reverse, my son employing me. The music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. So, until next time, always remember that the world is very, very large and butter is better than marge. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.